Hello and welcome to the IMI Talking Leadership Podcast. We all know that resilience has been a watchword for leaders and their teams during the disruption caused by the pandemic. And with our IMI Cubs Organizational Resilience Survey revealing that 86% of leaders felt their organization responded well or very well to the pandemic, this week on the podcast, we'll go deeper on that topic with National Management Conference keynote speaker, Whitney Johnson. According to Whitney, building resilient teams and organizations starts with the individual. Whitney will explain how leaders can become more comfortable taking the right risks, boost their return on achievement, and deal with ambiguity. So I'm delighted today to be joined on the IMI Talking Leadership podcast by Whitney Johnson. Whitney, how are things with you today? Oh, they're great, Dave. Thanks for asking. Yeah, it's great to have you, Whitney. And this is uh, such a fascinating time for leaders. And, um, you know, following up on your session at the National Management Conference, I thought it would be a good idea to just start off with one of the points you made around taking the right risks. And I think that's something that really resonates with a lot of leaders at the moment um, in, the, in this time of change. So I wanted to ask you, first of all, how do you think leaders can become more cognizant, perhaps, of the types of risks they're taking and maybe use them more to their advantage? Great question. Uh, Let me just recap quickly some definitions that I provided during the conference. So there are two kinds of risks that I think about. There's there's competitive risk and there's market risk. And so the question is, how can you be aware of or cognizant of the different kinds? So competitive risk is where you know there is a big, big opportunity, but you also know that there's a lot of competition. And so the question you start to ask yourself is, can I compete and win? And so um, that's the first thing I would look at is you see a big opportunity, you look at it, you assess it. Can we as a company, can we as a product, can I as an individual take on this risk? Can I compete and can I win? And there are going to be many instances where you feel like, yeah, I can. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably competed and won a lot. And so there are times when competitive risk absolutely makes sense. For example, you're on a track inside of a company, inside of an organization, the path is clear. You're just going to keep doing what you're doing. You sort of take on that competitive risk and, you know, full speed ahead. Then there's market risk and market risk is a different kind of risk. And this is what I really think about when I think about disruption and disruptive innovation. And this is where you don't know if there is an opportunity, but if there is an opportunity, there's no competition. And this is where that data point comes from. The innovator's dilemma is that when you're willing to take on market risk, your odds of success are six times higher and your revenue opportunity 20 times greater. And when you want to take on market risk is when you're trying to move forward in some way, um, trying to uh, develop a new product. You're trying to um, create a new um, niche in your career. You're trying to get a foothold in a market where you don't have a foothold. You want to look for opportunities to take on market risk. You want to look for ways to play where no one else is playing so you can increase your odds of success. And so at its simplest, if you're assessing a situation and you think, okay, I can compete in this situation and I can win, then take on competitive risk. But if you're going into a situation and you can't compete and win, then you've got to find a way to take on market risk, to play where no one else is playing so you can get your toehold and then eventually be in a place where you're going to be competitive. Exactly. And there are fascinating statistics there around um, the success rates and revenue opportunities associated with taking market risk. And that's uh, definitely food for thought for leaders and listeners to the podcast. I want to ask you now, uh, Winnie, just about uh, your S-curve of learning, which describes the point of mastery as the point at which dopamine levels begin to kind of drop off. And 
what I like to call the return on achievement maybe is not the same. You don't quite get that same buzz maybe. So do you think leaders maybe get too comfortable in the mastery part of the curve to their own detriment, maybe staying in a company too long or whatever it may be? And how do you think they can get more comfortable with the idea of doing a reset? I love that. Their return on achievement drops. That's fantastic. Um, So what I would say is, yeah, it's really comfortable. I like to be comfortable. You like to be comfortable. I think we, we like to listen to the music that we've always listened to. And we like to do the things that we've always done because it feels very, very safe. And yet we know um, that if we stay in that safe place, there's this wonderful quote by Annie Lamott, who says, you know, if you want to keep doing what you've always done, you're going to be like a mushroom living in the dark with poop up to your chins and you're going to be dying. And so um, one of the things that you can do is repeat quotes like that, that kind of get you to say, okay, I've got to do something new because I don't want to die. Um, But one of the hacks that I use is I think about um, loss aversion theory um, developed by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, because when we're really comfortable, we tend to think, well, if I do something new, then here's my upside, but that doesn't actually motivate us. What motivates us is to think about the bad things that will happen if we don't move. In fact, we're 2.2 times more motivated by what we lose than by what we gain. So for example, super comfortable right now, top of my S curve. If I think about Oh, if I do this new project, these three good things will happen. That's not going to motivate me anywhere nearly as much as if I don't do these three new projects, I might lose my job because I'm not taking risk. I'm not innovating. I'm not trying anything new. And so that certainly motivates us more. And so that's one of the ways that one of the hacks we can use to help ourselves get uncomfortable. By the way, one of the gifts of COVID was that we were all forced into something uncomfortable and we, um, are now have some momentum. And so that's giving us the momentum that we need in order to do more uncomfortable things. You talked as well at the the conference about identifying your distinctive strengths and that there's this, you know, idea that we all have blind spots, but it's not just to our strengths. It's also to our weaknesses. Um, what do you recommend leaders do to maybe consciously keep track of their strengths a bit more, be a bit more aware of them and maybe pinpoint where they could use them a bit more efficiently? So one thing that I have been doing, um, and I want to do more of is to, at the end of the day, just reflect briefly and think about those moments where you felt strong, you felt in flow. Um, so for example, yesterday I was on a webinar, um, after it was over, it felt really, really good to me. And so one of the questions I want to ask is, okay, so why did it feel good to me? Because it probably felt good because I was feeling strong in the moment. Did it feel good because I was really prepared and I knew my content well, and I love my content. Did it feel good because I was relaxed enough that when my cat started walking in the room, I was able to make jokes about it and not get distracted about it. Um, and so as I'm able to analyze that situation, what happened? Why was I feeling good? I'm going to be able to tap into some of my strengths like, oh, I know this content really well. And I like talking about this content. And so that would be my first suggestion as is reflect on your day just briefly. When did you feel strong? Because our, our strengths clamor for our attention in the most basic way. They want us to use them. And if you think about when you felt strong, you felt sort of this sense of, I got this. I feel good. I feel exhilarated. That's going to give you some clues to what your strengths are. And so then the question is, is how do you make sure you do more of that 
tomorrow and the next day. And, um, and as opposed to less of that. And then the second suggestion I would make is that observe what do people reach out to you for, for advice around for counsel, what kinds of things do they ask you to do? Sometimes people say, well, I don't know, you know, what to do, what product should I develop or um, what kinds of jobs I should go after. But if you actually pay attention to the things that people are asking you to do, you're going to get a lot of information. Quick example from my own life. You know, 10 years ago, people were constantly reaching out to me to ask them to do coaching or ask me to do coaching. And I would do it a little bit, but I was like, oh no, I don't, you know, I don't coach. I'm a, I'm a wall street equity analyst. I'm an investor, but people kept asking me to coach them more and more and more. And I realized, okay, maybe I need to pay attention to this. Maybe there's something I'm actually good at here. And that's why people keep asking me to do it. So that would be my second suggestion is just pay attention what are the things people ask you to do? And more importantly, what are the things that people will pay you to do? Because that will start to indicate what your, your unusual strength is. Whitney, a leading predictor of C-suite success, uh, as you've said yourself, is, is the ability to deal with ambiguity. And indeed, one of the key parts of the National Management Conference of which you were a part was our um, organizational resilience survey, which we conducted um, in conjunction with uh, Cork University Business School. And that revealed that 86% of Irish leaders felt that their organization responded well or very well to the pandemic. So that's, you know, a very optimistic note. But there's no doubting that our current context is one of change, disruption, and the targets that continue to change for all of us. So I just wanted to ask you, kind of in the context of the survey and those results, how does becoming a more resilient leader better prepare you to deal with this type of ambiguity? So I think that the starting point for me is sometimes when I hear resilience, I'm like, what does that mean? Right? Like, what does resilience actually mean? And so in my mind, I think about it. Okay. So for me, a, a simple way is you just bounce back, right? You know, you get like Jack and the, or, you know, the bouncing bunny, you get hit and then you bounce back, you get hit and then you get bounced back. And I remember about a year ago, I interviewed uh, Laird Hamilton, who is a big wave surfer. And he said to me, you know, every single wave you surf is you're basically failing. But then he said, he described it like this. It's just an inconvenience. And by the way, it's only temporary, which I thought was fantastic, right? When something goes wrong, you think about a surfer, every time that the, the, the wave ends, um, you know, it, they fall off their surfboard. And I love that idea of when something doesn't work, you just call it an inconvenience convenience, by the way, it's only temporary. And another thing that he said that was really fascinating for me is that when you fail, you're, you can know that you're actually pushing yourself toward the edge. And so that helps you also think about, okay, I can bounce back. Cause that just means I was pushing the edge. That means I'm pushing things forward. So to answer your question, I think, I think we, we build that resilience by practicing having to get up again. And so the more we're able to get up again, then the better we are, because what is ambiguity is it's walking into the unknown. It's, it's it, remember in the, in the, in the presentation, I talked about the surf, uh, skateboarders and how they're the quickest learners in the world because they receive this incredibly fast and useful feedback. And so I think the more that we can put ourselves in situations where we don't know what's going to happen, we have something come at us, whether we're trying, whether it's concrete as a skateboarder or a wave as a surfer, or just something unknown for us as business people, the more we do that, the better we'll get. And the more we'll be able to take a step forward gather that feedback and adapt, which is in fact dealing with ambiguity. 
Exactly. And that links in actually very well with uh, what we discussed about taking the right risks. Well, I suppose it's that idea of ambiguity, not knowing exactly what the end point will be, but uh, nonetheless going ahead. Yeah. And can I just add, I think yeah, that's absolutely. one of the beauties, Dave, of, of this past 18 months is that I think that we have all realized, I mean, from the survey, like you said, 86% of the, the respondents said, we feel like we responded, you know, we, 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 we managed through this well. I think that's one of the gifts of this past 18 months is that we realized that we were more able to bounce back. We realized that we were more able to adapt than we thought we were. And so this was a wonderful stress test for us. And I think in many respects, we, we succeeded with flying colors. And so, um, I think that's important for us to recognize and acknowledge and, and, and know that we have strengthened that muscle. And so we can now flex that going forward. Absolutely. And I suppose that the, maybe something that would kind of cross the mind of leaders now is sort of that next chapter mentality. And they might be kind of asking themselves, if I really go hard at this and I invest and do a, make a real investment in my own personal disruption, what might those returns be for me, both short and long-term? Would you be able to comment on that with me? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so first of all, um, you know, I, I believe that growth is our default setting. Every single person, you and everybody you work with wants to grow. And part of growing is, is, um, the price of growth or the price of a new self is our old self, which basically means we're disrupting ourselves in the near term. I would say on a day-to-day -day basis, you're not going to be able to see the results of those micro disruptions that you're doing of deciding I'm going to get up five minutes earlier today than I did yesterday, for example, because I want to work on this new project. I can't see the results of that today. What I can see. So in the near term, the return on um, personal disruption to use your, your phrase, Dave, is, um, is that you feel more alive. You feel like you're in your life. You feel like you're acting. You're not being acted upon. You feel the sense of self-efficacy. And so I think that's the near-term um, return. Even though it's going to feel awkward and uncomfortable, you are going to feel alive. It's like splashing cold water on your face. I'm alive and I'm doing this and I'm in this. That's the near-term return. Uh, the longer-term return is that you are going to see yourself move up these S curves. You're going to get better and better at completing these growth cycles. You're going to be able to iterate faster. And the more you iterate and the more you as a manager allow the people on your team and your colleagues to iterate, the better they are at self-disruption. What does that mean? That means you've got this network of people who are resilient because they've gotten really good at disrupting themselves. And they're now really good at responding when things are disrupted. And so longer term, you've got a more resilient organization and you've got people who keep working for you because they know that when they work for you, there is going to be upside in terms of growth. You are going to make it possible for them to disrupt themselves and to continue to progress. And as I said, growth is our default setting. We know that everyone's on an S curve, including you. And so when you allow people to disrupt themselves, it becomes a retention tool. And over the longer term, they and you as an organization become more resilient. Absolutely. And that's something that's so important at the moment, Whitney, as we know, with the, the high attrition rate in companies that we're seeing and you know, this, this talent battle is really intensifying. So it's, it's a really interesting one, uh, food for thought for sure. Whitney, just my last question is just around, I suppose the, the feedback uh, in terms of your NMC keynote uh, was that one of the most powerful moments 
was what you said about failure, which was towards the end. And this mm -hmm. kind of idea of did I fail or am I just learning, which I thought was a beautiful way to kind of um, to sum it up. So I'm just curious, what advice would you give to leaders to become a bit more comfortable with failure? Recognize that we all fail all the time. And so we're actually better at making mistakes and rebounding and being resilient um, around them than we think we are. So that would be the first thing I would say. Second thing is, um, is that there is a massive, there's an opportunity for us to, to do a reframe. So um, I had interviewed Alan Mulally who was the CEO of Ford and Boeing commercial airplanes for, for my last book, build an A team. And I was asking him the question. So, so how do you think about failure? And I was hoping to get something, you know, wise. And he said, well, I don't I thought, Hmm, that's weird. Okay. Let me try again. So Alan, how do you think about failure? He said, Whitney, I don't I thought, all right, I'm going to try. I'm going to circle that plane, that car around the track one more time and ask that question again, Alan, how do you think about failure? And he said, Whitney, I don't, I, when something doesn't work, I look at that as a gem. It's something that it's information of something that I can do better. It's that feedback, like that skateboarder, like that surf, you know, like Laird Hamilton in surfing. And so for him, he doesn't, he doesn't look at it that way. And what that said to me is that he doesn't what he makes the mistake, but he doesn't attach any shame to it. So his ego isn't part of the equation. It's not on the table. It's not a referendum on him. And so I think that's the second thing that I would say is how do we um, reframe so that we aren't looking at this as a failure or referendum on us? It's just, I was learning something. The second, third thing is, is that when you have this failure um, and there's a mistake that's made, as he said, it's a gem, there's gold, there is gold in that mistake. If you look at some of your greatest accomplishments, you will find that they were made possible by a circumstance that you were in or something that didn't work and a lesson that you learned from that that allowed you to move forward. And my fourth and final thing that I will say on this, and this has been incredibly helpful for me is um, in, in getting setting aside the shame is to reframe things as an experiment. So for example, um, when I'm trying to do something new, I had this session when I was doing some coaching and I was trying to perform. And uh, when I was trying to perform, it failed and I felt terrible. And so I start afterwards, I talked to my coach because coaches need coaches. And I said, so what do you think? And they said, conduct an experiment. And so the next time I did it, I write, I said, all right, so here's what we're going to do, everybody. I'm going to coach some people live. And there are going to be moments when you're going to look at me and go, wow, she is so good at this. And there are going to be other times when you're going to look at me and think, whoa, not so hot there. And that's okay. Because you know what? It's an experiment. We're all learning something. And as soon as I did that, as soon as I took my ego out of the equation, then we were all just learning together. And so I, I think the biggest thing that we can do is just frame everything that we're doing, set it up with your team as you're talking to people, we're going to do this experiment. What are we going to learn? That is going to allow us to do that reframing of failure um, that I think is so, so important. Yeah, exactly. Well said. And that's, that kind of sets up a framework for, as you say, experimenting, trying new things and ultimately uh, improving yourself and improving your resilience. Uh, Whitney Johnson, I want to thank you so much for taking the time today to speak to me. Oh, thanks for having me, Dave.